Lord, we ask, and even as I say the words, I'm just so amazed, so amazed that prayer is invited by the King of the universe, that you've ordained to be influenced, moved as by reminder through your creatures. So we, we tremble with the thought right now we are influencing you to act on our behalf in the next hours. Would you give wakefulness? Would you give mental acuity, alertness, nimbleness of thought? Would you give heart readiness to embrace all that is true and ward off anything that is false? Would you give us the power of feeling appropriate affections in accord with the nature of the truth that we see with our minds so that we tremble at what is fearful and are thrilled with what is glorious? Don't leave us dead and numb in our souls, I pray. Overcome this spiritual acedia this apathy and boredom that plagues our culture and makes us so vulnerable to so many titillating sins. So God, I pray that exceedingly and abundantly beyond everything we're able now to even ask or think, you will do good works for us. And through us, Lord, we want to be a blessing to our churches and our families, and our neighborhoods, and our cities, and the nations, and this whole world. So, let the ripple effect roll, I pray, as your spirit acts now through your word. I ask this in Jesus' powerful name, in whom all the promises are yes. Amen. I thought I'd start with uh, a couple of verses. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. By faith, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, past tense, and gave, past tense, himself for me. So now, hmm. The life I now live, so I'm walking step by step through this day, by faith in a person. So I'm, I'm taking a step, I'm speaking, I'm eating, whatever you eat or drink, and I'm doing it by trusting a person. And then the next thing he says is, who loved me 2,000 years ago. And gave himself for me 2,000 years ago. Now, how, you put, how does that work? That's where we're going here. We, yep. So the function of bygone grace. So put together with Galatians 2.20. That was Galatians 2.20. Romans 5.8. Which goes like this. Um, God, sometimes translated commends, most naturally shows, present tense. Very interesting. 
God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? He shows now, present tense, his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died. He shows by dying. He shows now by having died. He shows now by having died. So when I'm walking by faith in the one who loved me, the way the Bible, the way Paul wants me to think about this is because he died for me 2,000 years ago, paid it all, covered my sins, established my righteousness, removed God's wrath, grafted me to Christ, secured my glory forever. Because that happened 2,000 years ago, I should now feel loved now. Now. God shows his love. Shows, not showed. Shows his love for us now in that he died. Christ died. And if he's loving me now, he's loving me now, then this next step I have to take, he's going to help me. He's not against me, right? That's the way we live. I live by faith in him. I live by faith in him, meaning he loves me now. He's going to make all the promises come true now. The next step I take through this day, every, every step I can bank on, he's for me. It's going to help me. The promises are going to come true. I can believe each one of them for the next five minutes, for the next five hours, or the next five years, or the next five centuries. Okay. I, I started there because I read, I read Galatians 2 for devotions this morning, and it moved me. Um, here we are. Slide number 47. That's just, whoops, how'd that happen? That's, that's entertaining, isn't it? <laughs> Let's talk in a little more detail than what I've already said about the function of past grace. So this is that text that I um, preached on day before yesterday that is at the near the top, maybe the top, of my all-time useful, loved Bible verses. He who did not spare his own son, but gave, these are past tenses, him up for us all. Now the logic broken right there. This is called an a fortiori argument from the stronger to the weaker, from the greater to the lesser from the harder to the easier. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will, will, he not with him graciously give us all things. And whenever you have a rhetorical question like that in the Bible that doesn't have an answer, it expects you to know the answer. Namely, he will. He most certainly will. So the logic is, since he did not spare his most precious possession in the pursuit of your salvation, 
since he did not do that, he didn't spare him, but gave him up to beating and spitting and nail piercing. Therefore, therefore, he will give you surely everything with him. He'll meet every need. Everything you really need will be there. That's the argument. So I go back to this text as the foundation of my future hope more than any other text because it is the most sweeping and the most ultimate of promises and foundations. The foundation happened 2,000 years ago where, where God overcame the greatest obstacle to my salvation, namely his infinite love for his son that surely would not let him allow that son to be killed. He simply cannot allow his son to be so scorned and so mistreated and so killed. He cannot allow that because Jesus is his most precious possession. But he did. He overcame the hardest obstacle imaginable, which means a fortiori that he will find it relatively easy to fulfill all the other promises to me. This is breathtaking. And you need, I don't think this logic, I call it the solid logic of heaven. I don't think this logic would be in the Bible if it weren't useful to us. After I prepared that sermon, I was praying about the message and it just flooded my mind. This is why we have a college. This is why Christians plant schools as well as churches. Logic matters. Infinitely matters. That's not an overstatement. If this logic doesn't hold, nothing matters in the universe. Right? I mean, he expects us to read Romans 8.32 and he's reasoning with our souls. He's saying, do you see that if, if then, if he didn't spare his son, then he won't spare any effort in caring for you? Do you see that? If you don't see that, how can you be a Christian? How can you live the Christian life if you don't see the argument from the greater to the lesser? So I shared this with my daughter breakfast yesterday, and she didn't know the term a fortiori at 16. I said, okay, going to learn a fortiori. And then I gave the same illustration to her I gave in the sermon. Karsten, six years old, this would be 32 years ago or so, why don't you run next door to Mr. Smith and ask him if we can borrow his pliers? And Karsten says, but maybe Mr. Smith doesn't want us to borrow his pliers. Maybe he won't give them to me. And I, a fortiori, with a six-year-old, I mean, blessed is the child that grows up in a home where, where reasoning holds sway, okay? You say to the child, oh, I'm sure he'll, he'll let you have them because, because, be very important word in life, because yesterday, Mr. Smith loaned me his car all day, happily. And I'm sure, Karsten, if he is happy for me to have his car all day, he'll be totally willing to let us have his pliers for an hour. 
little Karsten processing the a fortiori argument? Oh, okay. He doesn't have to know the names. He just needs to reason. His life is hanging on this someday. Can you believe that? I mean, don't belittle logic. This is logic in its pristine, essential, spiritual necessity. Romans 8.32. Train your children up to think this way. Think clearly. Think rationally. Reason comes from God. Arguments exist that are valid because God is valid. God is valid. He is what he is and he's not what he's not. That's principle number one in logic. A is not not A. Okay, let's get started on logic here. I just totally, I mean, some of the things that are most obvious to us and would never have been questioned centuries ago are being questioned today. That's why you have to say the obvious sometimes. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There it is again, exactly the same argument. Does that argument move you spiritually? Does it affect your heart and your emotions? Isn't this amazing? Reasoning is to make you willing to die. Reasoning is to make you willing to stay married. Reasoning is to make you happier than you've ever been in all your life. That's what reasoning is for. We, do you see, if you have now been justified, then much more, it is more, it is more likely that something that hasn't yet happened will happen, namely, he'll save you from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming upon the world. Future grace says, I'll save you from it, but how do I know I'm included? Are you justified? I trust Jesus. Then you're justified. If you're justified, you won't be swept away in the wrath. That's reasoning. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, here's the argument, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. So I'm illustrating how past grace relates to faith in future grace. And the past grace here is how was an enemy? In spite of my being an enemy, he overcame my enmity and reconciled me to him and him to me. He did it by the death of Jesus. And if he did it, then all the more can you count on him saving you forever. I was 22 years old before I was self-conscious about seeing these things in the Bible. That is, arguments like this. I read my Bible very faithfully. No doubt, intuitively, I was picking them up as a teenager. But nobody ever paused to point out the nature of Paul's 
reasoning here with the much mores. And they are precious. Continuing the relationship between past grace and faith in future grace. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for one of the most important words in the Bible. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses tomorrow, this afternoon, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, so this, this right here, beginning with for and being followed with therefore or then shows how the argument is working. In the middle here, this is, this is the ground, can't fit it in there, is the ground. And it grounds this and it grounds this. Let us then with confidence draw near. When? When? Now, five minutes from now, tomorrow, tonight, let us with confidence. Why? On what basis shall we tomorrow and tonight with confidence draw near to get help? Help in time of need. That's all I am. I'm, I'm just one desperate help. Morning, help, Lord. Noon, help, Lord. Evening, help, Lord. What confidence do I have to trust that it's going to come? We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way was tempted yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. Grace to help. That, this, is, this is why the title is future grace. That's it. I mean, that might be one of the simplest verses to see it. Verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Live by faith in future grace means pray hour by hour for the mercy and the grace to help in time of need. And do it on the basis of the fact that you have a high priest interceding for you in heaven who has passed through the, the curtains of his own flesh into the Holy of Holies and there is pleading your cause not on the basis of your good works or your merit, but on the basis of his perfections and they cannot fail. I love Christianity. I'm so glad I'm a Christian. This is such good news. I can't believe I get to do this. <laughs> what is the role? Okay, that, that's the end. Maybe I should stop there and see if there's a question up, up there. Tony, anything on at this point, or am I too early to, to check in? In the light of your statement last night regarding your inclination to be skeptical... 
How do you internally process dealing with professing believers who have little spiritual affection? Okay, so if I'm understanding it right, a skeptical person like me seeing a person who's professing faith, they're not manifesting many spiritual affections. I'm suspicious they're not a Christian. Is that what that question means? And how do I deal with them? Um, um, I try to crucify my inordinate skepticism, first of all. I don't, I don't want to belittle appropriate questioning and skepticism. I think I'm a sinner, and therefore my skepticism leans toward being inappropriate and inordinate. And you know what verse checks me on this more than any other? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Or toss in 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, if my love, if the Holy Spirit begins to gain ascendancy in the control of my heart, I think I will look upon those people with more hope rather than writing them off. So my internal dealing as a skeptic is to first fight my battle, not their battle. I want to fight me, not them, okay? That's my, that's my first instinct is I'm a sinner. My skepticism could really, really damage a weak person here. If I manifest that I'm suspicious about you and you're just a weak, struggling saint and not an unbeliever trying to pose, then I could really hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. I'd rather mistake the good than the bad. I'd rather, lean, I'd rather err on the side of hope than the side of skepticism. So I fight that battle here. And then I just want to take people where they are and do what I do. I mean, I'm a preacher, I'm a writer, I'm a seminar leader, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a mover among people, and I want everywhere I go, everything I do to point towards the things about God that awaken affections for Him. That's what I want to do for these folks. You know, when it comes to manifest affections, personalities are so different. I mean, how many of you, you know, north of the Mason-Dixon line or maybe north of Brazil grew up in homes where there weren't any emotions except one, anger. That's all you remember. Dad was anger and mom was sad. That's all you remember. And you're supposed to be radiant for Jesus and show it. That isn't going to happen without long-term transformation miracle. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that there's all kinds of blockages, right? Emotional blockages. This new person down here that's been awakened, there's genuine affection for Jesus. You really do want him, love him, treasure him, and it's just bumping into all kinds of personality dysfunctions in your life, all kinds of junk you've been through. It's just, it's hardly ever getting out. You hardly ever express it the way you'd like to express it. You feel rotten that you can't be like 
you know, John Piper jumping up and down, waving his arms, shouting, and you're just kind of steady state. So I just want to own that when I'm dealing with such people. I, I want to say, okay, now, am I dealing with a Swede here or an unbeliever? I told myself years ago in this church I wouldn't do that. <laughs> this is the first Swedish Baptist church in Minneapolis. You know that? We changed the name in the 30s. But you, you know what I mean. Just take it on the chin, all you blondes. For the sake of the cause. So I think, new question. Are you saying God's promise is... God's promise, his future grace, do not apply to us if we do not accept or believe them? That's a very good question. Um, They do not apply to you if you're not among the elect, which means they do not apply to you if you're not a believer. The way you know you're among the elect is that you trust in Jesus. The promises of God are promises in the covenant. They're made to his covenant people. You're in the covenant by faith in Jesus. And if you're in there, they count for you even on your worst days. And some of those days can be really embattled. And the battle, I mean, Paul wouldn't have said to Timothy, would he fight the good fight of faith if there were no battle? I mean, if, if Timothy's faith was always at, at 100%, what's to, what's to fight? If your faith is starting to languish, if your confidence in God for this afternoon is starting to languish, you need to be told, fight the fight of faith. And so if the question is, as, as those promises, as, as that faith goes down, do those promises count? You have to read the promises in context and ask, is there a condition put on it? When it says in James, um, humble yourself before the Lord because God gives more grace to the humble, there is a correlation between my rising and falling humility and the kinds of graces within the covenant that rest upon me. So, for example, if, if, if a preacher becomes kind of, goes into a season of self-sufficiency, starting to feel pretty good, you know, about the church, and, and, and there's starting to be a self-reliance in the pulpit, I can have it to a Christian pastor, I think the power, the grace of power can be withheld from the Lord. So the promise of, I will empower you, rises and falls with your reliance, humble reliance upon that power. So I've just made a distinction there in this question. Um, Promises are valid for the elect, for those who are in the covenant, for those who are born again, for those who are believers. And in that covenant, some of those promises are made contingent and they rise and fall upon faith. So the... the, um, The point of this course is I want to live day by day in faith in those promises. 
I don't want to try to figure out, okay, what's the minimum? What's the minimum blessing I can enjoy from God and the minimum faith I can have in order to just squeak by at the judgment and get to heaven? That's not the way the newborn person thinks or talks. Maybe one more. No more questions for now. Okay. Um, I promised last night that when I mentioned faith is the agent of our holiness and our love and our obedience, that you should have asked, whoa, I thought the Holy Spirit was the agent and the real one who does the work. Okay, now we're going to talk about the connection between those two. What's the role of the Holy Spirit in enabling obedience? How does it relate to faith and future grace? So three verses from Galatians here. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and and so on. So first statement, where does love come from? Love is brought about by the Holy Spirit sap-like pushing fruit out on the limb of my life. Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, what kind of faith? Faith working through love. So where does love come from? It comes from faith. Well, does it come from the Holy Spirit? Or does it come from faith? And you see where I'm going, probably. It's the way I read my Bible. I see verses like that, and I just stop and get out a piece of paper, fold it in half, get my pencil, and start doodling possible solutions to that. Now, that feels like a problem to me. I want to know how that works. Love is coming by the Holy Spirit. Love is, is faith working. And here's the uh, put together. Three, five. Does he who supplies the Spirit, I need that because he's the one who bears the fruit of love in my life. I want to be a loving person. That's holiness. Can't get to heaven without holiness. Can't validate your faith if you're not a loving person. Whoever does not love is not born of God. John, 1 John 3. So I want to be a loving person. I know that the Spirit produces it, therefore I want the supply of the Spirit. So does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do this by works of the law? And Paul expects you to answer what? No. Don't be timid. He expects you to answer no. Does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And he expects you to answer yes. Good. All right. Now, we don't just have that and that, this tension here. We have them brought together. The supply of the Spirit and the working of miraculous things, both in terms of spiritual gifts and in terms of miraculous moral transformations, he does that not by works of the law. In other words, the Christian life is not, here's the law, you can read the Ten Commandments, I take those Ten Commandments, I have a will, I will not do them. 
That's not the Christian life. That's moralism. That's what the world thinks is the Christian life. This is why Tim Keller is so helpful by saying that every time you preach against libertines, you know, people that just sleep around, drink themselves drunk, smoke themselves dead, steal, lie, you know, zero law, just wild. Every time you preach against that, you better also in that sermon preach a little bit against legalism. Why? Because those people that are doing that bad stuff, they have no conception of any alternative to what they're doing except works of the law. That's all they can think of as an alternative. Why would they think of anything else? They don't know the gospel. Which means if you want them to stop doing what they're doing for Jesus' sake and become Christians and not moralists, you've got to preach the gospel. Not just stop doing bad things. They hurt you. That's not Christianity. So Paul says the way the Holy Spirit works and releases power to love is not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. Interesting way to say it. You could have just said by faith. Why do you say hearing with faith? And the answer is because Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And the Word of God is shot through with promises to believe. So, if you ask me, um, I'll be back there in a minute. If you ask me, how do faith and the Spirit work to produce love? Faith is awakened by the Spirit to believe the promises made by Christ. And in being satisfied in all that God is for us in Jesus, which is what faith is, that faith itself consciously inclines us away from greed, away from fear, and into serving other people. And the Holy Spirit awakened that, and the Holy Spirit is flowing through that. So that Paul can say, I worked harder than any of them, nevertheless it was not I. Why does the Spirit unite himself to faith as the way of bringing about the works of love. So I'm arguing that the Holy Spirit has chosen to move through faith and not another way. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's mission is to glorify Jesus and so he makes conscious faith in Christ exalting promises the means by which he works. That argument makes sense to you? According to John 6:14, the Holy Spirit is going to be sent, the comforter will be sent to glorify me. 
So the mission of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, make Jesus look great. If you're full of the Holy Spirit, you think Jesus is great. The evidence of Jesus being magnificent in your life or the evidence of the Holy Spirit being in your life is that Jesus is magnificent in your life. Remember that awesome little short phrase from 1 Corinthians 12, 3? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. (gasps) And of course, he doesn't mean that computers can't say that. And, And dead spiritual human beings can't pronounce that sentence. He means say it, mean it, say it from the heart. Nobody can feel the wonder of the Lordship of Christ over the universe and feel a glad submission to him without the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that is sent in the world to magnify the, the greatness of Jesus. According to John sixteen fourteen. So why then does the Holy Spirit work holiness, work love through faith in future grace? Because if he did an end run, picture this now, if the Holy Spirit did an end run around faith, left you doubting Jesus and made you a loving person, doubting Jesus and his promises, not believing in Jesus and his promises, he just did it. He's made you loving. It's a self-contradiction, but we're imagining it. Jesus would get no glory for your love because he's being doubted right here. He's not being loved. He's not not satisfying your heart. But if the Holy Spirit goes through this, if he awakens trust in Jesus, if he awakens treasuring of Jesus, if he awakens future grace, faith in future grace, then the love that comes from that gets glory for Jesus. Because Jesus is the one being trusted. So if I'm walking into a situation where I need to love somebody, they're very hard to love. Love will require that I talk to them. I don't want to talk to them, but love says talk to them. What promise should I trust? One of the promises would be Jesus saying, John, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age, including these 20 minutes of conversation. I will be there. And I will help you and I will strengthen you. I won't leave you like an orphan. I will come to you. I will be a spirit of wisdom to you. And I will bring to your mind what you need. I will steady your hand. Now, if I trust him as he says that to me, that act of love makes him look But if, if, if I'm not going out love that way, if I'm kind of skipping the faith piece, skipping the trust and the treasuring piece right here, and I'm just saying, Holy Spirit, please help me to do the hard thing, and you're not even thinking of any promise, you're not even thinking of trusting Jesus, then Jesus doesn't get any glory, and the Holy Spirit doesn't act where Jesus doesn't get credit. You're going in your own strength. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? No. Or by hearing with faith? Yes. 
And this hearing here is there because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And what Christ says is, I'll be with you and I'll take care of you and I'll help you. And you believe that. And then when you believe that, the Holy Spirit is mightily at work in your life. Pause for a question. What's the joy set before him that Jesus was looking to in Hebrews 12, 2? Is he modeling faith in future grace for us? He is. Um, I think that's one of the slides that's coming, but I'll say a word about it. From Hebrews chapter 10 through 11 through 12 right here and through 13, in all of them, the most amazing sequence of texts in all the Bible with regard to how faith in future grace produces radical love is found. And if, if you put me before any group of people and you said, you got 20 minutes, show them from the Bible that faith in future grace produces love. I'd go straight to Hebrews 10 through 13. I might go to 2 Corinthians 8 too, but but these are powerful, and this is the one that's right in the middle, namely Hebrews 12, where lay aside every weight and care, throw them off, um, look to your high priest, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. By I'm going to add the word trust. Can I do that? Because it says in 1 Peter 2.23, he did not revile when he was reviled, but he entrusted his cause himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus is moving into the cross. He's handing over his cause. He's entrusting himself, and he's looking to the joy. And that question says, what was the joy? I think the joy is he gets restored to the glory that he had before the world was. He gets the added glory of being the Lord now triumphant over death and sin and, and Satan and hell. He gets surrounded by untold numbers of redeemed saints who praise him forever and ever, and he gets to delight in making us like him and enjoying our joy in him. And a hundred other things you could say about the joy that's coming for Jesus. And that, yes, that joy sustained the greatest act of love. So if you were to just say, give us one example of a great act of love being empowered by faith in future grace. I would say Christ died for the joy that was set before him. Christ was carried in Gethsemane. Christ was carried at the cross, <clears throat> and Christ was carried into death and sustained so that he could maintain his faith in his Father by the joy set before him. What books would you recommend to develop biblical solid reasoning on logic? I don't know. Um, I'm, I've, I've never read a book on logic. Surprise you? Um, Isaac Watts has one that's still in print called Logic. Uh, I know the folks at Moscow, Idaho, Doug Wilson has a book on Logic out there. So those are two, but I haven't read them. Um, I teach Logic by preaching and by 
teaching arcing when I get a chance, that is how to break text down into pieces and relate them to each other. Um, and I'll, I'll, I had, I've never had a course on logic, but I have had lots of courses on logic. The first and most important course I had on logic was in the 10th grade for Mrs. Clinton. It was called Geometry. One of the most important courses of my life. No exaggeration. She was awesome. Learn a hundred axioms and build proofs for one year. That's awesome. Never had a more important training for my brain in all my life than 10th grade geometry. Don't despise math. Math is for exegesis. That is right. Math is for exegesis. It's also for hospitals and getting on the moon and healing diseases and making cars and things like that. But, but mainly math is for exegesis. <laughs> and the second one was uh, two courses on philosophy in Wheaton with Stuart Hackett who drove home day after day after day the law of non-contradiction as he applied it to every bad philosophy. So sorry that I can't be a better recommender. I have uh, come to love logic by indirect means, and if you didn't get it that way, it probably would be good to read a book on logic, and probably be good for me to, but I haven't. Um, and would you consider teaching a seminar on logic and exegesis? No, yes. <laughs> or yes, yes, if they're the same. Um, I, I, I wouldn't even, I mean, my, my course on logic would only last an hour. I mean, I only know a few things, and, and they make all the difference in the world. So may, maybe I should do that, just have an hour course on logic. Oh, this is it. I mean, I'm, I've done it. I, I think I've said everything I have to say. <laughs> There are complexities. All men are mortal. Plato is a man. Therefore, Plato is mortal. Okay, that's syllogistic reasoning. And if you say um, horses have four legs, Fido has four legs, therefore Fido is a horse, there's a problem. Logic would help you know why. Okay. But, you know, I mean, this, this just feels so obvious to me. And yet, it, it isn't to a lot of people. So. But, thank you, that was uh, an embarrassing question. <laughs> What's the role of gratitude? Now, here's, here's the most controversial thing about this book. We're going to talk about that for the next few minutes. Um... I have, I have gone a lot of places and said things about gratitude that have really gotten me in trouble. I remember one time I went to a Golden Gate Seminary in California, Southern Baptist School in San Francisco. And, uh, and I, I preached on how bad the debtor's ethic is or the gratitude ethic. And I could tell by looking at their faces, this is not going down well here. <laughs> I met with the faculty afterwards and they were really angry. This is a long time ago, so it's probably not the same faculty. I don't know, but they were really angry with me because I, I had just 
said the opposite of what they say in all their classes. Namely, they say the number one motive for obedience is gratitude. And I'm saying you can't find that in the Bible anywhere. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> the number one is not in the Bible. So you probably wonder too, like, really? You think that's not in the Bible? Okay, so we need to spend a little time on this so I can maybe clarify. I'm going to end this section with a peon of praise to, to gratitude. <laughs> I love gratitude. You cannot be saved without being a grateful person. Uh, Romans 1 they neither glorified him or thanked him. Therefore, they are without excuse. Gratitude is really important. Okay, don't hear me belittling gratitude. I just want to get faith in future grace and gratitude for past grace in their right connection in your life and how they function together. I don't want gratitude for past grace trying to take over the job of faith in future grace. Like, that's not your job. Go back where you belong, infinitely valuable gratitude. Oh. And I don't want faith in future grace trying to take over the job of Gratitude for past grace. That's not where you belong. Go where you belong. Do the work appointed for you. Do the work appointed for you. And don't get in each other's way. All right, here we go. Nowhere in the Bible is gratitude connected explicitly with obedience as a motivation. And I'll bet we're going to get a question on that. We'll see. If you can find one, put it on Twitter and we'll show it up here. Nowhere in the Bible is gratitude connected explicitly with obedience as motivation. We do not find the phrase out of gratitude or in gratitude for acts toward God. So when somebody says we should obey God out of gratitude, I just say show me one verse in the Bible that comes close to saying that. Christian obedience is called the work of faith, never the work of gratitude. We find expressions like live by faith and walk by faith, but never live by gratitude or walk by gratitude. Never. We find the expression faith working through love, but never gratitude working through love. We read that the aim of our charge is love that issues from sincere faith, but not from sincere gratitude. We read that we are sanctified by faith, but never that we are sanctified by gratitude. We read that faith apart from works is dead, but never that gratitude apart from works is dead. So here's my preliminary conclusion. The explicit conscious connection between the work of Christ and the grace of God on the one hand and our obedience and holiness and love on the other hand is faith in future grace, not gratitude. So let's say that again carefully. I'm looking for the connection. So over here on this side is work of Christ, grace of God, 
And over here is obedience and holiness and love. And I want to know, how do we forge a link between all that grace and all this obedience? And I'm arguing the link is forged not by gratitude, but by faith in future grace. That's my, that's my contention. So here's, here's my warning. The temptation to say, God has done so much for me, what can I do for him is very great. And there's a, I, I don't want to overstate this, there is a way to say that that can be biblical and can be um, God-honoring. And there's a way to say it that is deadly. You know, the, the text that comes close to saying it is Psalm 116, verse 12. I always think it's 112, verse 16, but I think it's 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? Oh, that's what just you told us not to ask. No, 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 no. It's okay to ask that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, and when you think of all his benefits, the psalmist in Psalm 116 verse 12 says, what shall I render to the Lord? Sounds like payback. Sounds like the debtor's ethic. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? What's his answer? I will lift the cup of salvation. What does that mean? Lift the cup of salvation. I can think of two possible meanings when you lift the cup, both of them biblical, I think. One is to lift the cup of salvation, as it were, a toast to you, God, to you, to life. A tribute of praise. We're honoring God by lifting the cup. That's one meaning. I don't think that's the meaning. The other meaning is more, <laughs> all of them, more. Because the next phrase is, and call upon the name of the Lord. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. You know what God wants from you at the end of receiving the greatest blessing that you've ever received? He wants the cup lifted with a thankful more, please, because the next five minutes you're as needy as you were before. And if you don't honor that and acknowledge, if I don't have more, more blessing, more grace for the next hour, then I will take the past grace of the last hour and try to run my car on gas from yesterday. It's burned. It's gone. You can't run tomorrow's car on yesterday's gas. Grace came for yesterday. Gratitude isn't designed to run your car. It's designed to look back and say, you're amazing. You're amazing. I love you. Thank you. I did that last night walking home. You did it. I lasted three hours. Yes. Thank you. And now I got a sermon to write. I went to bed at 2 a.m. this morning. Isn't he awesome? 
grace was three great three hours of grace was over. My heart was bubbling with gratitude. The gratitude I'm getting ahead of myself now is feeding my faith because if if you did it for three hours, you could do it for another three, four, whatever. And, he, and you trust him. You know, just to be honest, I was so confident he would. I watched the last six minutes of a of a March Madness basketball game. I think it was 11 o'clock, and I watched Notre Dame go down for six minutes. I just love the ends of basketball games. I don't care what happens in the first three quarters. I just love the tension of the last three minutes. Okay. And that, that, so you're not feeling sorry for me at all that I was up so late, right? You, you should not feel sorry because you, you ate cereal and you watched a basketball game. Where, where am I? Where, I'm, I'm lost. Totally lost. What was I doing? Um, oh. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? That's an okay question. That's what I'm pointing out. God has done so much for me. What can I do for him is, is an okay question if you answer it the way the psalmist did. And the psalmist said, I can't pay you back. And um, the gratitude that I feel right now is not the power that's going to carry me forward. I need more grace. I'm calling upon you to fill my cup again. And when you fill it again, I will pour it into the day that it's designed for, and then I'll come back for more. And God, being the infinite resource that he is, loves that. Do you love Second Chronicles sixteen nine? <laughs> Raise your hand if you love Second Chronicles sixteen nine. Amen. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show Himself powerful on behalf of those whose heart is whole toward Him. What does that mean? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking. To find somebody that he can be strong for. I want to help somebody today. Where's somebody? Let me help them. I've got big shoulders. Where's somebody has got some burdens I can carry? I'm feeling ready to carry a burden today. That's our God. That's our God. If we would, if we would trust him. So I'm, you know, that question a long time ago about... Uh, if we don't have the faith, do we not get the blessing? No. If you want to carry your burdens, he'll let you be squashed for a while. But if you'll hear the promise, I'm looking for people that will let me be strong for them. He will be. That is, we can slide into thinking that obedience is payback. Just don't go there. Obedience is not payback, but it is very dangerous for three reasons. One of these we've seen already. I'll just read them real quick. Um, we can never pay God back, not one penny's worth, because every move we make in love and holiness is a move that God himself supplies. So we are simply going deeper into debt to grace by our obedience, not paying any of it back, not paying off the debt. That may be one of the most important things I have to say in this seminar, if you just get that. Remember, that was the illustration of I'm 
Okay, God's been good to me. I say, how can I, what can I render to the Lord for all of his goodness to me? I will obey out of gratitude and, and, and I step. No, that step of obedience, if it is God-honoring obedience, is done in the power that he supplies. And if it's power that he supplies, it's grace. And if it's grace, I'm going deeper into debt with that step and deeper into debt with that step. And there is zero payback. Ever. You can't pay God back. Isn't that why Romans 11 ends the way it does? Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. How inscrutable are his judgments. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In other words, he's always the giver. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Acts 17, 25. Therefore, every step I take... There's a song, right? Every step I take in you, Jesus. That's a good song. And we go deeper in debt. Number two, if we could succeed in paying God back for all he does for us or for any of it to that degree we would nullify grace and turn it into a business transaction grace is free or it's not grace so if you want to try to to get into the payback mode you will nullify grace you'll cease to live by grace and the third response to why the debtor's ethics shouldn't be pursued. Thinking of obedience as empowered by gratitude directs our attention backward to bygone grace rather than forward to future grace. In this way, the debtor's ethic tends to divert us from the wealth of grace yet to be known and distracts us from the very power of obedience we need. Power of, that should be for obedience we need. Future grace. You can't run your car on gratitude for yesterday's gas. So I'm saying that in the moment when obedience is called for, and you're thinking, what's the power for this obedience? How am I to connect with God's grace? If you say, the connection is gratitude. Gratitude now. In the power of gratitude, I will step. You are Allowing yourself by a good thing to be misdirected from the very thing you need. And what you need is blood-bought grace for the next step. And it comes in half a second. It came. It came. It came. And that's not the power of gratitude. That's the power of grace coming right now, and the connection with it is faith. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you that the next five minutes I'll have this, and the next I'll have this, and the next I'll have this. Now, having beat up on, on gratitude, I'm going to give a tribute to gratitude because God would not be pleased if I left you with a bad taste for this awesome thing. There are ways that gratitude helps bring about obedience to Christ, okay? Now, if this sounds like backtracking, it's okay. Maybe I am. There are ways that gratitude helps bring about obedience to Christ. 
One way is that the spirit of gratitude is simply incompatible with some sinful attitudes. Get that? Just having a sweet, humble, childlike, excited gratitude for the red fire truck under the Christmas tree of grace rules out some sins. I think this is why Paul wrote, there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, they're not fitting, but in their place should be the giving of thanks. Now that's very different from the debtor's ethic, isn't it? What that means is one of the reasons people become filthy in their language Silly, they're just never serious. They're always silly or they're coarse. One of the reasons that happens is they're not thankful people. They're not. They're not thankful. They're not blown away by grace. A, a, an overflowingly thankful person may have a robust and glorious sense of humor. But he's not silly. He's not given to levity all the time, making every situation into a joking situation. He knows the balance of situations. He's just, and he's not given to ugly speech. And he's not foul in his talk. Those are all signs of a very ungrateful heart. So hear me saying that the dynamics of holiness and the dynamics of sanctification also involve states of heart, like gratitude, which are incompatible with certain kinds of sinful attitudes and therefore are wonderful agents of sanctification. Gratitude is a humble, happy response to the goodwill of someone who has done or tried to do a good favor for you. This humility and happiness cannot coexist in the heart with coarse, ugly, mean attitudes. Therefore, the cultivation of a thankful heart leaves little room for such sins. A second way that gratitude advances obedience is that it strengthens faith and vice versa. When gratitude for God's grace, past grace, is strong, the message is sent that God is supremely trustworthy in the future because of what he has done in the past. In this way, faith is strengthened by a lively gratitude for God's past trustworthiness. So now, remember, I, I, I had these, this is gratitude here, and this is faith in future grace. I'm like, don't you take my job, don't take your job. And now I'm saying, if gratitude for all that God has done is lively, the message is being sent to this fellow over here, hey, you know what? He's going to keep his promises because look, look what he's done. So that message is being sent. So a lively gratitude is a strengthening of faith in future grace. On the other hand, here we are, when faith in future, in God's future grace is strong, the message is sent that this kind of God makes no mistakes 
so that everything he has done in the past is part of a good plan and can be remembered with gratitude. Ephesians 5.20 says, give thanks for everything. In this way, gratitude is strengthened by a lively faith in God's future. That's a little more complicated to see. Do you see it? So if, if God has graced you to be looking into the future and he has brought some promises to your mind, he's going to work everything together for your good. He will withhold no good thing from you. He will pursue you with goodness and mercy all your days. He will help you. He will strengthen you. Those promises are just lively in your mind. The message is being sent back here to Mr. Gratitude. Mr. Gratitude, I've noticed you've been doubting that what happened to you when you were a kid could possibly fit into any good plan for you. You've been doubting that. You've been doubting that that marriage that broke up 20 years ago, that the the kid right now who's walking away from Jesus, you've been doubting, Mr. Gratitude, that any of that could really be something that you could ever give thanks for. Well, I'm telling you, this God who's making these promises out here that I'm so confident about, he was the same God back there. And you can trust him with that. You can be thankful for that. So close with a, on this section with a tribute to gratitude. This interwovenness of the profoundly and pervasively future-oriented nature of faith and the ordinarily past uh, orientation, uh, past-oriented nature of gratitude is what prevents gratitude from degenerating into the debtor's ethic. So that conversation between faith and gratitude, I think, prevents us from the payback ethic. Gratitude for bygone grace is constantly saying, be strong. Do not doubt that God will be as gracious in the future as I know he's been in the past. And faith in future grace is constantly saying to gratitude, gratitude, there is more grace to come. And all our obedience is to be done in reliance on future grace. Relax. Exult in your appointed feast. I will take responsibility for tomorrow's obedience. That's what faith says to gratitude. Okay, we have two units left. One is called, How Does It Work for Holiness? And the other is called, How Does It Work Against Sin? And they're the same, only um, for holiness is asking, How does faith in future grace positively produce love? And how does it... Work against sin is how does faith in future grace kill the things that kill us? Now, that's, that's the difference. When you kill the things that kill you, love is what happens, but we've broken it up anyway. So the origins of radical love, and I've already argued that holiness and radical love are the same lifestyle. We've seen Galatians 5, 6, faith working through love. So there's the clue that love comes from faith. And we've seen 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love, and it comes from a sincere faith. Now, let's take 
these two units from Matthew 5 and see how particularly faith in future grace produces enemy love, okay? I want you to love your enemies. My sermon tonight, tomorrow, um, is about loving, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Uh, By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love one another. Greater love has no man than this than that he lays down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his friends who happened to be his enemies at the time. So we should love our enemies and we should love our fellow Christians. How? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've heard. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So there there is a specific illustration of love. So one form of love is praying for those who persecute you. Now I'm going to go back to chapter 5, verse 11 now. And the reason I'm going back is because I want an answer to this question. Which is harder? Praying for those who persecute you or rejoicing in that persecution? And my answer is it's much harder to rejoice in persecution than to pray for your persecutors because you can say prayers no matter how you feel. You can not be rejoicing in your persecution and you can pray, oh God, have mercy upon these people. They don't know what they're doing. So if God could give us joy in persecution, which is the harder thing, then he would also help us pray for them, which is the easier thing. And praying for them is called love. And so love would come from whatever it is that helps us rejoice in persecution. See that reason? That was reasoning. That was called reasoning. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You're blessed. Rejoice and be glad. Why? How? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's arguing that the key to gladness in the midst of persecution is reward in heaven. Christ will be there. You will be totally satisfied forever with Jesus in heaven. Every wrong will have been righted and uh, you will not struggle with any sin or disease or sickness or disappointment anymore. There will only be full and Increasing happiness in the ever-revealed glory of God. The reason I I always talk in terms of joy in heaven being ever-increasing, not implying that there's a state where you're unhappy and then you get happy, but rather this happiness becomes a better happiness and that becomes a better and a better, is because God is infinite and you are finite. So this brain and this heart, which has a capacity to know and a capacity to feel, are finite. God is infinite. Infinite. How does an infinite being reveal the fullness, 
infinite fullness of his knowledge and his beauty to a finite mind and heart? Answer, takes forever. This is mind-boggling. Forever. The concept is mind-boggling. No end. There's no end to God showing you more of himself. Which means heaven will never be boring. You won't ever get tired of it. Every day's new dimension of discovery will shed a fresh light over everything you've already known and make it fresh. You'll wake up every morning. I don't know if we're going to sleep in the age to come, but you'll, you'll wake up every morning and there will be such uh, a fresh and new and glorious sight of more of God that you'll be more glad. Okay, so I'm just unpacking great reward here. Great is your reward in heaven and therefore in this moment when things aren't going the way you want and persecution is, is uh, coming, you can be glad. And if that is true, if, if you can rejoice, then you can pray. Surely. You can pray. And that prayer is a form of love. And therefore love... comes from the great reward and your satisfaction in it. Make sense? I will be able to love my enemy if I am so satisfied in my future reward that I have the wherewithal to rejoice and out of this joy meet his need. My definition of love is Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others, including your enemies. Love is the overflow of joy in your great reward that meets the needs of others, including your enemies. So that's an argument that holiness or love happens by faith in future grace because I'm just saying Faith in future grace. The future grace in this case is the great reward and faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Here's another illustration from Jesus. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Nobody. Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, what kind of argument is this? It's another a fortiori. It's amazing. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, just like Paul argues in Romans 5, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now pause there before we read the next verse and get what, what he said. He's talking about prayer. He had just said, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. And then he says, now let me give you an analogy. There are evil dads, like all dads are evil. And those evil dads, one of them is named John Piper, has four sons and a daughter. And if they ask for um, bread, 
will I open the back door, go out, find a stone, bring it in, and put it on their plate? No. Okay. And if I ask, if they ask for a fish, will I go scrounging around somewhere to find a snake and slip it into their lunch pail? No. I'm not going to do that. They're my children. Well, if you then, who are a sinner by birth, know how to give good gifts, your father will take care of you. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is just shot through with arguments for why we shouldn't be anxious. It's chapter 6, verse 25 to 33. Don't be anxious what you should eat or what you should drink or what you should put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't store barns and yet your father takes care of them. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil or spin, yet your father clothes them. Aren't you much more valued than the birds? Why are you anxious for these things? She's just arguing and arguing. My people, my people, don't be anxious. I'll take care of you. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's what he's doing here. Now comes this word. In the Greek, un, therefore. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. What's that called? It's called the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. You fulfill the whole law and the prophets if you live that way. Do unto others as you'd have them done to you. There's another word for that. It's called L-O-V-E. Now, if this is love, if verse 12 is love, where does it come from? Where, what, when... when when therefore introduces it on the basis of what went just before, where does it come from? It comes from faith in future grace. What future grace? My God won't give me stones. Ever. A little lesson in answered prayer here. Um, my favorite illustration of my fatherly answering a prayer that wasn't answered is when Benjamin, probably about four, wanted a cracker. Snack time, you get a cracker. Can I have a cracker? Okay, snack time. We reach up, get the cracker, open, they're covered with mold. And I say, oh, Benjamin, they're covered with mold. He doesn't have a clue what mold is. And he's, I said, they're covered with mold. Look, they have fuzz all over them. And he said, I'll eat the fuzz. That's what he said. I'll eat the fuzz. So he was praying to his father for, for a cracker. The cracker had mold on it. He was willing to eat the mold. And I wouldn't give it to him. I, I, I said no to his prayer. I forget what I got him. I got him something that wouldn't hurt him. That's what this text says. And when you ask for bread, he won't give you a stone. He may not give you bread. He may give you Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> or whatever you need at the moment. 
Um, I love Tom Steller's word about prayer. When we pray, nothing never happens. So the point of that big, big part is God hears the prayers of his children and he takes care of them either the way they want him to or better. The way they want him to or better. Therefore, love your neighbor. Let's think that one through. What, to think it through, you have to ask, what hinders me from loving? What hinders me from doing to them what I would like to be done by? And the answer is um, greed, fear, selfishness. And he's saying, if you have a father who has promised to take care of you, that'll kill your fear. To satisfy you, that'll take away your greed. To be everything you need and to glorify you someday would take away all your cravings, selfish cravings for human approval and, and, and needing to have your own way now. All those things are going to go away if you have this kind of father here. So you do have that kind of father. Trust his care and step into love. It comes from there. That's what the word, that's what the word therefore means. Another illustration. Jesus said to the man who had invited him or at the feast where he was, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, watch out for being motivated by payback here, even among your friends. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When I was doing my studies in Germany, 1971 to 1974, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the command, love your enemies. And I spent three years reading about ethical motivation. And it was amazing to me how many supposedly Bible scholars argued that if you are ever motivated by a future reward, the act you are performing is not loving but selfish. And that seemed to be in the air, maybe still is as you breathe it. 
that if you are motivated to seek a blessing through an act of kindness, you're not really kind, you're selfish. If that's true, Jesus is a bad teacher. Because Jesus said, invite the poor because you'll be paid back at the resurrection. I mean, you can go with the, with the ethical logic that's out there in the air, or you can go with Jesus. Now, once you choose to go with Jesus, you should answer the objection. Like, isn't that selfish? No. Not in any kind of abusive way. It is certainly self-gratifying. I do want to be raised at the last day. I do want to be happy in heaven and not suffering in hell. But you know what keeps it from being selfish is it, my confidence that I'm going to be raised and that Jesus will be my all in all is freeing me to take you with me at any cost to me now. That's my answer. My confidence that things, that he's for me and he's going to bless me for every little sacrifice I make, whether it's just having dinner with people that may be hard to talk to, maybe they, they don't speak my language. I'm having them over for dinner and that's harder than having your friends over. A little teeny sacrifice, he's going to make it up 10,000 fold in the age to come. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. For me to be freed by that promise to do the hard thing with a view that my joy in him would become their joy in him is not abusive. It's not manipulative. I'm not stepping on them to get to heaven. So don't buy it. I do not buy the argument that if you do something out of longing for and confidence in a greater reward, you're not a loving person. That would only be true if the people that you are acting with and toward, you did care about. You didn't want to take them with you. But I'm not only wanting to take them with me, I would tell them if they asked me, your going with me makes my joy in God bigger. A shared joy is a double joy. So come, make my day. Yes, I am loving you in order for me to be happier. Because when you're happy in him, I'm happier in him. So, faith in future grace means that when you read verse 14b, and trust it, you are freed on Thanksgiving to not just have your family. Invite a foreign exchange student who can barely speak English, or invite somebody from the Andrew home who is mentally ill, or invite, I could name a few people in this church, it would be very hard to get along with at the Thanksgiving table. You know who they are. We love them dearly. They're just weird people. <laughs> Every church has them, and they're there by appointment, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. The weaker members we clothe 
because they are indispensable to the church, no matter how hard they are to deal with. You can have them over Thanksgiving dinner, not because it can be easy, but because your reward is getting bigger every year in heaven. And you want those people to feel the love of Jesus flowing from you and have the same confidence you do to do some hard things in their life. I said Hebrews 10, 11, 12, and 13 illustrated this. I don't know, I'm sure why I dropped chapter 10. may have it later, I don't know. But let's, let's look at 11. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now that's an amazing choice. You're going to do that? So he chooses to share ill treatment with the people of God. So you're going to, some of you young folks are planning to be a pastor or maybe a wife of a pastor and your husband is thinking about taking this church. The church has a record of killing pastors, figuratively. And you, you talk it over and you pray and say, you know, this might not work. This might really not be a happy 10 years or life. I know, I know, but they need a pastor. Perhaps God will use us to work a miracle here. Would you go with me? Can we, can we choose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin? And now at that moment, what should be, how should you be motivated? Wife, husband, link arms, okay. How should you be motivated? And you can think of whatever, whatever ill treatment you might need to walk into. Verse 26 is the answer. Moses did this because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. He wanted to get rich with true wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Exactly the same argument that Jesus used. Here's an opportunity to love a, a rascal, murmuring people. I mean, you read the story of, of the Exodus and, and the wilderness wanderings, and you want to tear your hair out that God can bring water out of a rock, and a few hours later they're grumbling, and you just see a mirror. You see yourself in the mirror. And poor Moses gives 40 years of his life to this and then can't go into the promised land because he blew it and God disciplined him and, and he chose it. He chose it. Meekest man on the planet and he chose it. Why? Because he, as he thought about the fleeting pleasures of Egypt, fleeting pleasures, got any fleeting pleasures that are enticing you today? And then he thought about the wealth of, of uh, what it would be to be with Christ in persecution and mistreatment he weighed the fleeting pleasures of porn or the fleeting pleasures of wealth or the fleeting pleasures of the approval of my friends being liked and the eternal weight of pleasures of walking with Jesus through hard times and loving people. It's like, that's a witch. You're supposed to go down, right? Like that. This is greater. This is heavier. This is I'm going here. That's the way faith and future grace 
produces love. We saw that one already. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Where did the greatest act of love in the history of the universe come from? It came from faith in future grace. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Or chapter 13, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for here we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. Now that is endlessly applicable to your life. Jesus has gone outside the city. He has shed his own blood for your holiness. Therefore, because he did that, we're going to go. Now where? 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 Well, you, you name it. You choose it. Afghanistan would be a big missionary thing, or for you it might be I'm staying in the marriage. Or making a call to my 35-year-old son that I haven't talked to for five years. Or I'm going to work in the nursery and, and miss worship once a month or whatever teeny little sacrifice it might be. And the answer is because here we have no lasting city. I, I, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to put my, my heart in the fleeting pleasures of Minneapolis and what it offers. I'm seeking a city that is to come. This life is very, very short, very short. And eternity is very long. So why would we try to have heaven now? when we're promised heaven then. I think most of our ethical issues are a problem of eschatology ar arriving too quick. We, we, we forget that we're pilgrims and we insist on having heaven now instead of saying, it's coming. You live for love now. Don't live for maximizing your immediate pleasures, live for the big pleasures, the long pleasures. That's future grace. Okay, pause, Q&A. Here we go. I'm a debtor's ethic-driven parent. I find myself quick to remind my kids of what I provide for them, house, food, clothes, toys. In a moment, I can recall a long list of things. I am making an implicit claim that my children should therefore respond to me in joyful obedience. It often doesn't work for me, and it usually piles guilt on them. Any thoughts on the debtor's ethic dynamic in the home? Wow, that's a wonderful discovery. I mean, that's a, that's a great place to start. <laughs> know thyself is the beginning of one kind of wisdom. So start there, and then I think the focus of our energies 
would be not first on the parenting dynamics, but the God-me dynamics, because probably this is flowing from a misconception of how God loves us, God relates to us, how we relate to him. And um, the reason we are trying to coerce our children into responding to us a certain way is because there's a certain neediness in here that is feeding off of their approval and their rightness, and they can, they can sense that, and it makes manipulation pretty easy and makes life hard. So let's, let's, let's make sure this thing gets revolutionized, that God is ready to give me grace by grace. I'm stepping into grace. I am increasing my joy as I trust God for every day's grace. And he's for me. He's devoted to me. My stepping in obedience is not getting him to be for me. He's already 100% for me. This does not make him for me. And then you, and then you pause and say, okay, if I'm getting it with God, now how could my children begin to feel that way? If I'm like God and they're like me, how could they begin to feel that way? And there would need to be a declaration, probably repeated. Words really matter, really matter. It's so sad. I, I heard a 63-year-old man. No, 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 no. It was his wife. This, this, I did this reconciliation thing. It was his wife that said, I've never heard um, mom say she loves me. I'm sure she did. <laughs> That's tragic. Words really matter. So this parent is saying to the children, I want you to know you're my child. I love you. That's a given. Nothing can ever change. A sense of real solidity. I'm tempted to tell a story about our lunch meeting, Tony, with, but I won't. Um, that really happens. I mean, kids grow up and they can sense that even if everything else isn't in order. They can say, I know I can always come home. Dad'll have me. Go ahead. Real quick. Okay. Let me let me see if I can weave that in because I wasn't quite finished with with this one. Um, the question there was, what if you feel God does give you a stone when you pray? That's that's a very 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 good question. And let me work this way through and see if they, they come, come together. Um, so, next thing I would say with regard to the parent who um, is, is setting up a debtor's ethic with the kids is to teach them this in, in devotions so that they realize obedience can flow not um, in order to get mom on your side because mom is already on your side and it is more blessed to give than to receive.
But maybe, maybe I should just stop by saying work on the vertical relationship. Speak much affirmation and love into the children's lives and teach them the dynamics of grace and faith in future grace. With regard to the question, you pray and ask for bread and you don't get a better cracker, you get a stone. And I would admit that it feels like that sometimes. You might pray for healing and the person dies. Um, that felt like a stone. And my answer is, when circumstances inevitably look to us like stones and serpents, faith in future grace says that's not the way God is. You trust the promises and the promises say no good thing does he withhold from his own. All things work together for good. I am brought up to the edge of despair of life itself. That was to make me rely on the God who raises the dead. So my approach, and this is, this is the way faith works, is as bad things accumulate, and there have been points in the life of this church when so many bad things accumulated, it would have been very easy to just despair of God, despair of the ministry, walk away from it all. And at those moments, you take a promise and you say, my perspective on this is not God's perspective. It is flawed. It is finite. I cannot see beyond this crisis. I know that God is at work, and I will simply trust him to turn this snake into a rope by which I will be saved. That's the way I do it. One more question, then we'll keep moving. How does the reality of future grace affect our praying for big things and dreaming big gospel dreams. For example, John Knox prayed, give me Scotland because of future grace are we led to pray this way. Hmm. Yes. Next question. <laughs> Um, what I thought of just before I said yes and the reason I said it was the promise this gospel will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come now I, w I was just trying to think of a big promise to go with the big hope big prayer and that's the one that came to my mind uh, there are others uh, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. But if he's going to be witness to among all the unreached peoples of the world, I think we should get on our knees and say, give us 4,000 Muslim peoples. Give us the Near East, Lord. Let, and what I mean by that is not that everybody gets converted. My eschatology just won't go there short of Jesus coming. We could talk a long time about post-millennialism and amillennialism, premillennialism, and being a hopeful premillennialist like me and a negative premillennialist. But my hope is there will be stunning works of the gospel in the world according to 
Matthew 24, 14, and we have not yet seen all that God can do, and we should lay hold on him for magnificent things. I'll give you one illustration of what I mean. Um, in Matthew 24, it also says that the love of many will grow cold. I think that's going to happen in this age. The love of many will grow cold. But those who endure to the end will be saved. And it will cost some of you your lives. That promise, I think some premillennialists become so pessimistic about everything they don't believe anything possible can happen as the age draws to a close. That's illogical. Illogical. If there's a glacier spreading over parts of the world, parts of the church, and the love of many is growing cold, is there anything in the Bible that says, I can't take my God a centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion and torch the glacier above Minneapolis and a hole opens up and this whole city turns to Jesus. No, there is nothing in the Bible that says that can't happen. So, I stand at the window in my study, faces that magnificent cityscape right there, right across the highway over there, and I pray for it regularly. I look at those high rises and I say, bring them to Christ. Tens of thousands of people like ants down there are going up and down and working down there. Bring them to Christ. Raise up Bible studies. Cause those 10 mainline churches in the downtown area to explode with reformation and revival. In my, in my best moments, those, those are the kinds of things I pray for. So the reason future grace would move me to pray like that is because God is sovereign. God owns the world. God means for his name to be exalted. There is no limit put on the Bible for any given city and how godly it might prove to be before the end comes. Okay, I'm going to keep going. We have an hour, a little less than an hour, and we're just starting the last section on how does it work against sin, and we've got... um, anxiety and covetousness and lust and impatience. And if we don't finish it, you will have seen enough that the trajectory will be clear. I'm starting with anxiety. And the reason I'm starting with anxiety as a sin that needs to be overcome is because it's so pervasive. It's in every other kind of sin just about that I can think of. Always a piece of anxiety everywhere. And um, I, I think anxiety for finite, fallen, sinful human beings is so pervasive and endemic, so part of our nature that uh, it's not just John Piper who was nervous as a kid and, and has to still fight anxiety, uh, but it's everybody. So that's where we're starting here. Definition, the loss of confidence, security in God owing to feelings of uneasiness or foreboding that something harmful is going to happen. That's my definition of anxiety. The loss of a confident sense of security in God. He's my father. He's going to take care of me. I can endure anything for him, even death. I don't have to be afraid. Instead, you've got 
feelings of uneasiness and feelings of foreboding that something harmful is going to happen. It might be as little as you're going to be embarrassed by wearing the wrong kind of dress to the prom or, or you're, you're going to try to speak and try to recite something by heart and you can't remember it or, you know, or, or it could be you're imprisoned in uh, Afghanistan. Where is he? Jo- Pastor Yosef. Iraq, Iran, I can't remember, but there he is, and we're praying for him, and, and, and you could die. And that, that, that produces anxiety. Will I, not, not just what will the pain be like, will they torture me, and will I hold, but um, will, I, will my faith survive? So Jesus argues against anxiety like this. Don't be anxious. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. This is a fortiori again. Oh, you of little faith. So there's the key to being free from anxiety. Faith. Faith in what? He'll treat you better than the lilies. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. For a long time in my life, I struggled with that, as I'm sure you do too. Really? Really, all that you don't, don't, don't be anxious about what you should eat, don't make sure what you should drink, don't be anxious about what you should wear, and, and the list would go on. Seek the kingdom, trust your Father, and you'll have them. Really. Now, we know Jesus said people will be killed for their faith. Matthew 24. So you get killed for your faith, and and all your needs are met. Yeah. Just before that, it said, not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair of your head will perish. They will kill some of you, but not a hair of your head will perish. What does that mean? I mean, Jesus is not, not, he's not, he's not a schizophrenic. He doesn't talk double talk. He doesn't have a forked tongue. He means what he says. Not a hair of your head will perish, and some of you, they'll chop your head off. He means that every need that you have in this life in order to fulfill his perfect God-glorifying will for you will be provided, including in the moment of your execution. Or, to make it really hard, including in the moment of your starvation. Oh, this text says what you eat, what you drink, seek the kingdom first, and all these things will be yours. And you're saying a Christian can starve doing the will of God? Yes. And you know, I mean, some of you know, what text I will go to to base that on. Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, food and clothing, as it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered, period. Verse 35. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. So maybe in the stones, in the snake, more than a conqueror. Tribulation, distress, Persecution, yes, even famine, yes, even nakedness, peril, sword, in all those things, in all those things. Christians don't just get out of all those things, in all those things, more than conquerors. So what this means in its gospel context and New Testament context, what this means when it says all these things will be added to you is all these food, clothing, Drink, housing, friendships, education, transportation, vocation, everything will be added to you that you need to do his God-glorifying will. There's, there's no promise here that Christians don't suffer and don't lack. There's a promise, you get everything you need. Philippians 4.19 is one of those promises that I'll be in the store right back here. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, even as you die. I mean, Paul said in the same book, he's in prison. And he wants to glorify God in his body, whether by life or by death. My God will supply all your needs in prison there in Rome. And when the sword is about to fall, every need you have to hold the faith will be there. This is my only hope because I, I ponder, well, what if I, well, I don't know what it's going to be like to die. I don't know how much it will hurt. I don't know how scared I'll be. I don't know how many promises will go out of my head and all I'll see is black, bleak future and there won't be anybody there maybe that night to talk to me and sing with me and pray with me. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, yes, I do. I know one thing. I'll never leave you. I won't forsake you. Don't be anxious. Trust him. I alluded to this before. I want to lodge it in your mind because it's just so useful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to, the, to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, to feel the force of this, you have to realize that Lamentations, with its five chapters, is the most horrible book in the Bible. Yes, more horrible than Job. Jerusalem has been sacked. They are boiling and eating their children. 
It is the lowest moment in the history of Israel. The exile. And here are two chapters which are acrostics. Here are two chapters which are acrostics. And here's a unique structural chapter in the middle called number three, composed in a different way. This whole book is written as the most crafted book in the Bible. The book that is called Lamentations and is the most intensely horrible, um, horribly emotional book is the most crafted book in the Bible, structurally. And in the middle is this, square in the middle. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases in that moment. That was a stone if there ever was one for Israel. His mercies are new every... His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Now, here's what I want to draw your attention to. New every morning means tomorrow morning there will be new mercies. And you'll be okay if we substitute the word grace, won't you? just so it fits my seminar. <laughs> there will be future grace. I hope it's okay. Tomorrow morning. It'll be new. It is not here right now. This is why we live by faith. Right now, you and maybe I'll feel tonight as I get ready to preach on, what, four hours of sleep, I'm not sure the grace is going to be there tonight for this and tomorrow. I'm not sure. And what do I do? I go here. It's, it's not there now. It's not there now. The grace to do this seminar is not the grace to preach at 5.30. I have to trust that. Either it's going to be there or it's not going to be there. I'm going to trust that it's going to be there. Will it be there? It says it's going to be there. I mean... Because, you know, when it says they're new every morning, well, like morning here is not morning in China. Because they don't be picky here. Like, they only come in the morning. Well, it's morning somewhere. <laughs> That's why, you know, Jesus says, okay, here, here's why that is so important. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. And tomorrow is always happening to somebody. It's midnight somewhere. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, what does that say? That says every new day brings fresh troubles. Every new day brings its own trouble. So don't import tomorrow's troubles into today. Leave tomorrow's troubles for what? That. That's the connection between those two texts that I love with all my heart. Somebody comes along and says, don't you realize, I mean, we're in transition at Bethlehem and you're about to switch off to another pastor. I mean, things could just fall apart. And I start listing off things that could go bad. <laughs> Have I been here in vain? Like, what? If any troubles show up tomorrow, 
Guess what? So do mercies. So do mercies. Exactly tailor-made mercies. Yes, they do. Exactly tailor-made mercies for tomorrow's trouble. That's what it says. Mercies are new every morning and the troubles are new every morning and they're designed by God to match. And the things that makes a match in your heart is faith and future grace. So I'm going to bed tonight. And I asked you last night, what makes you think you'll wake up a believer in the morning? Answer, new mercies. It's not in me to wake up a believer. New mercies wake me up a believer. I've been praying for the last several days since I got my sermon ready for last Thursday that God would just help me stop being such a crummy morning person. Wake me up happier. And you know what? He's been doing it. And I spanked myself for not praying more consciously. I've been, you know, calling myself a not a morning person all, and I haven't been praying like I should, that I would wake up conscious of the promises of God, conscious of the mercies of God, emotionally, not just intellectually. And he's been, he's been doing it. I'm really praising him for that. So, um, we are freed from anxieties about tomorrow morning because even though we know tomorrow morning brings its own trouble, it brings sufficient mercies. Got that? That's the argument from that text. And here, just a few closing on this anxiety piece. One of our fighter verses, my little kids used to say it, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. That's what our little kids used to say. I said, because kids are afraid. Kids know fear. You give them something really juicy for battling fear and they'll, they'll appreciate it. So you go to bed at night. Are you afraid? Yeah. Why? Monsters. They're monsters in the closet. And they come out. These are real for kids. What's in their head or whatever, shadows, whatever, dem demons. And you say, okay, I've been afraid too. Me too. I, I get afraid. And... Uh, you don't grow out of fear. Fear goes away with promises of God. God takes care of you. God's in this room. He's stronger than, the, than these monsters. And so uh, when you are afraid, put your trust in him for the future grace that you need at 3 a.m. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I got a whole slew of examples about particular anxieties. And I think looking at the clock, I'm going to Skip them all because they're all just specific examples of what I just said. I'll just let you name them. So there's anxiety about being useless and a promise to go with that. These are all going to be online next week. Uh, Anxiety about feeling weak and promise to go with that. Anxiety about difficult situations and having guidance. Will you have it? Promise about that. Anxiety about afflictions. Can I endure them? Promise about that. Anxiety about aging. Increasingly relevant for me. And promise about that. Let me go back there. Okay, I'm cheat. Um, Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will save. You needed a dad when you were one. You'll need a dad when you're 81. 
I'll be there. That's good news. Battling anxiety about not persevering. Are you afraid you're not going to last? After all that talk about holiness last night, there's the promise for that. Battling about anxiety about death. Are you afraid to die? There's a promise for that. Now, sin number two. First one was anxiety. Here's covetousness. Definition of covetousness. Desiring something not for God's glory or in such a way that we lose our contentment in God as our supreme treasure. That's my definition of covetousness. Because, you know, in the Bible, the word covetousness is just the word desire. Like, and you have to say bad, because not all desire is bad. So I'm trying to say, what's bad about desire? There's some desires that are bad. And, and my first answer is uh, desiring something not for God's glory. And my second is, in such a way that the desire, though it may be a good thing, like, I want to be married, or I want a job, or I want to get well, may be such that the desire is taking away all of your contentment in God is your supreme treasure. So what, what do you do to fight this sin of covetousness? Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Four. That's what I'm looking for right there. I'm looking for those arguments. I want to argue with my soul. I'm going to become a, an attorney with my soul and say, soul, we're going to dump this covetousness for that iPad 3 or, or for that car that, that uh, doesn't have that funny clunk in the back. And we're going to dump this. We're going to be content with what we have. Four. He has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I'm going to be content with what I have because he won't forsake me. In other words, he's, he's enough. And he'll be enough tomorrow. This is an iPad 2. Oh, fooey. The three has four pixels for every pixel on the screen. My life will be so much better. <laughs> Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So don't fret coveting things you don't need. Or, I love this one, not that I'm speaking and being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Covetousness is desiring something so much you lose your contentment. So I have learned to be content and thus overcome, kill covetousness. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know in every and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. What is it? I'm suggesting it might be right there. The secret of facing plenty takes a secret to face plenty. And a secret to hunger takes a secret to starve. Well, 
I, need, I have learned the secret of facing abundance, and I have learned the secret of being in need. This is amazing. What, what this is saying is, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What needs? The need to face hunger well. The need to face need well. The need to handle abundance well. The need to handle plenty well. That's what we are in America mainly. I can do all things. What are the all things I can do? I can be needy. I can be hungry well through him who strengthens me. And what Philippians 3, 8 says, I have counted, I have, uh, whatever gain I had, I, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is that the secret? I think that's the secret. He says, I have I have learned, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry. How? Well, what's the secret? I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So when abundance comes, I count it as loss. And when poverty comes, I count what's loss as loss. I have Jesus. He's my all. Satisfies every need. He'll take me right through death. That's the secret. So the, the, the aim of this course is, uh, is not a secret anymore. It's just that's what we aim toward, pray toward, live toward, knowing him that well and treasuring him that well. We've already looked at 635. Take care, be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I, I, I'm, I'm including these because I said last night that Scripture warnings may not sound like promises of future grace, but they're based on the tragedy of losing the supremely precious future grace. So they're the flip side of promises of future grace. Like if you keep going down this path of covetousness, you will lose the treasure. You don't want to lose the treasure. He is all satisfying. This is not. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So we need to be aware that riches lie to us. They lie to us. Oh, do they lie. And the desire for other things, things lie to us. Because... One of the biggest lies of the devil is having makes you happy. Having makes you happy. I need to have. I need to have a better this and a better this and more of this. Have, 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 have. There's no correlation between having and happiness. Not godly happiness. Godly happiness is we are had, we are owned, we are loved, we are possessed, we are taken hold of, we are being drawn into and will have the universe someday. And to the degree that we put all that aside and try to get our happiness and having, 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 it will backfire. More people jump off the Coronado Bridge than the Brooklyn Bridge to kill themselves. Coronado Bridge is in San Diego. Beautiful. 
It connects the mainland with uh, one of the wealthiest little islands in the world. Brooklyn, poor. Poor people don't kill themselves as often as rich people. There's no correlation between having and happiness. Therefore, kill covetousness. To those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation. The desire to be rich, you fall into temptation. You fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away and pierced themselves with many pangs. If you ever needed a warning not to want to be rich, not to put your happiness in having, there it is. It's suicidal to want to be rich. I'm using my language carefully. Want to make a lot of money if God's given you the grace to give a lot of money. The problem with making a lot of money or inheriting a lot of money is that the temptation is so strong to keep a lot of money. And not only keep it, but surround yourself with all the symbols of wealth. Certain clothes, certain jewelry, certain cars, certain houses, certain neighborhoods, because you have it. And you should show that you have it. I've seen the ads in the, new, in the magazines on the airplanes where they know who they're appealing to. You should have a lazy boy chair because rich people have this kind of lazy boy chair and you made it. That's evil. That's what this text is talking about. It pierces people. It leads them into many harmful desires and plunges people into ruin, plunges people into destruction, pierces them with many pangs. Covetousness is suicidal and deadly. Be content in Jesus. End of covetousness. Um, maybe one question. What do you tell a person who is already trusting God with all their heart but still experiences anxiety in the medical sense, panic attacks, pain in the body, etc.? Very good question. The intersection of the body and the spirit is a mystery that nobody has figured out. And uh, we Christians, I think... Um, should own that mystery, not deny it, that there are ways that bodies and genetic makeups are so constituted that they affect experiences of the soul. And we know, I'm arguing, that experiences of the soul by faith can have physical effects. Now, I would not go so far as to say that the only way that God blesses the soul-body union is solely by the means of spiritual exercises. In other words, I believe in, let's start with the simple, exercise. 
I think God has given us bodies with muscles that are intended to be used. And if they're not used, not only do they get floppy, but your brain gets floppy because the exercise produces these little weird things called endorphins or whatever. They are. I don't know how it works. I just know it works. That when I beat my body at the gym for 40 minutes, I am a happier, more patient, more kind, more loving, more ready-to-go-to-work person. And you could say, whoa, that's just carnal. You know, where's faith and future grace in that? It's because I learned from God that he created this body, gave it to me, designed it to function a certain way with the brain and the soul, and told me to discipline myself so that certain states will come about. He told me that. He taught me that. Or, to make it even simpler, sleep. Okay, now it's exercise and sleep. If you don't sleep, okay, I just risked, risked it last night by not getting enough, but I'm, I'll make it up. If you don't get enough sleep, enough days, you know what happens? You get crabby. Crabbiness is a sin. So sin came from lack of sleep, not the devil. Oh, not so simple. The devil knows that lack of sleep makes you crabby. Therefore, the devil gives you the desire to watch the midnight movie. This is very complicated stuff. So, part of spiritual warfare is to get enough sleep. Most of you need eight or nine hours, you get six or seven. You wonder why you're sinning so much? You don't get enough sleep. Serious. Somebody comes to me with depression, they say, I'm depressed. I'm going to ask them right off the bat, how much sleep do you get? And the first thing we're going to do is try a week or two of eight hours. Even if you have to have some help to do it. No coffee or whatever, for two weeks, or just whatever. And then we're going to talk and see how you're doing after that. Then we'll know a little more about what you're dealing with. Right now, just we're going to... So, sleep, exercise, um, sugar. Like, maybe you shouldn't eat so much. I went off of all processed sugar years ago. Why? Spikes. I saw it in the early morning. Spike depression, spike depression, discouragement. Can't hardly function at 10 a.m., well, is that, is that godly? You bet it's godly. God showed me the way my body affects my soul. And then he told me, use your discipline to do what you need to do. Okay, now those are simple and easy, all to illustrate a principle. You are embodied souls and bodies affect souls. And that raises the question of antidepressants, okay, on which a third of you are right now probably. And I just want to say, um, on a continuum, I'm not going to call that a sin. It can be a sin. You can go there too fast, and you can stay there too long, and you can become a junkie, and you can begin to be artificially sustained. And I know it's it, impossible to know where that is, okay? I know that. Um, so I would just say, let's let's... Join arms, let's link arms with um, the medical profession and bring what we know to bear on uh, depression and discouragement and, and the hardships of life and let what they've learned and we've learned about the body and its effects and let's bring them together in a biblically appropriate ways that are not easy to find. There are a lot of disagreements about these things, but 
that's where I'm, that's where I am. Okay, 20 minutes, let's keep going here with uh, lust. Definition of lust. Pursuing illicit thoughts or images in the mind with a view to stimulating sexual pleasures with or without external stimuli. So I'm, I'm just talking about lust here, not, not fornication and not adultery, although from the lesser to the greater, this would be, if it applies to this, it applies to, to that. I'm just talking about lust, the, the stuff that's on the inside, the stuff that's going on on the inside. So uh, pursuing illicit thoughts, so not all sexual thoughts are lustful. I'm, I'm treating lust as sin, lust, sin. I'm asking, what's bad lust and good lust? What's bad sexual desire and good sexual desire? This is my effort to define bad sexual desire, not all sexual desire. Husband and wife should have all kinds of good sexual desires, in the head and out, acting. So pursuing illicit thoughts or images in the mind with a view to stimulating sexual pleasures with or without external stimuli. You might use pornography, you might not. It doesn't matter, it can still be lust. Okay, lust grows out of suppressing, is one way it grows, the knowledge of God and his promises. I'm not making that up. I'll give you some verses. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through, so your old self was corrupt, through deceitful desires. What does that mean? It means that you were the slave of desires, and the way they enslaved you was by deceiving you. And what, what did they, how did they deceive you? They made you in the moment feel they are more compellingly satisfying than God. And fellowship with him and friendship with him and sweet intimacy with him, which you sacrifice when you indulge in lust. So they lied to you and they deceived you, which means they took away knowledge from you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So you're Christian now, and there were passions. You don't have to be conformed to those passions, because those passions belong to ignorance. In other words, now you know some things about a treasure. When you didn't know the treasure, you craved junk. And now you know the treasure, and you crave the treasure. You know something. You know him. Not knowing ignorance produced those passions, gave them free reign, had no power to stop them, and now you know something. This this knowledge has power. I'm I'm just, you, you may say it doesn't have any power in my life. It's there. It's in the text. Here's another one. Each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Why did he add that? Who do not know God. Don't, don't, 
Don't live with your wife or your girlfriend or, or movies or internet. Don't live in the passions like the Gentiles. Why? They don't know God. You know God. Know God. You know God. That's why. The Bible assumes that if you know him, really know him, know him in his worth, his glory, his value, his wonder, his wisdom, his power, his amazement. A little analogy. Uh, final, you know, the March Madness is going to co- come down to the final four and, and then one last game. And you know what? While you're watching that game, you're not going to be masturbating. You're not even clicking through to look at anything. You know why? This is fun. I'm loving this. This is awesome. Look at that shot. Look at that move. Look at that steal. Look at that last two-second play. You are so into this. Sex is not functioning here. You're free. A person who knows God experiences something like that. He does. Our quest is to know him. I tell you, God's action in history, God's present action in running the world, God's future transformation of the world, and God's characteristics in the panorama of his perfections are 10,000, to understate it, 10,000 times more exhilarating than the most exciting Final Four game you ever saw. We don't know him. That's why we're lustful. I'm looking at my clock here, trying to decide whether to move on to. Maybe just this one. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, knowledge of glory and excellence, by which, by which glory and excellence He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature and escape, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So that's a complicated sentence, but gloriously powerful in our lives. We escape from sinful desire by sharing in the divine character which comes from the promises of glory and excellence. Faith in future grace frees from sinful desire. Promises, promises of glory, promises of excellence, promises of wonder, promises... I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. We should cultivate such a wonder of what's out there on the way to us that we would be set free from these sinful desires. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see 
God. So if you keep your heart pure from lust, you see more of God. If you don't give way to a life of lechery, you will see him finally. I'm going to pause on this one to finish my answer to the very first question that was asked last night. I, I was going to bed last night. I thought, yeah, I didn't finish the answer. The, the answer was from chapter 8, verse 12, where it said, uh, Therefore we are debtors not to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, and you expect him to say, we are debtors to the Spirit. Well, in effect, he does say that, but look how he says it. This is the next verse. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Yeah, we're debtors to the Spirit, not in the sense of payback, but in the sense of constantly need him, constantly needing to be in debt to his daily provision. So, you're, you're, you're seeing a deed of the body in front of you. Click on through to the pornography or uh, um, not, um, not quite report all of your honorariums on the tax return. Just, you, a deed of the body is about to be performed that's sinful. And this says, put it to death. Kill it before it happens by the Spirit. Which means the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The Spirit flows through faith in the promise of a better future. You trust that God will take care of you better than lying on your tax forms or better than clicking through to pornography. You trust Him, and by trust you are appropriating. He Does He who supplies the Spirit to you do so by works of the law? I'm going to work this out. Or by hearing a promise through faith, yes, through faith, Power, no click, no lie. And you're a debtor again to the Spirit. So yeah, if that's what's meant by debtor, we need to be his debtor every day. I don't know if we use the word that way. Bitterness and an unforgiving spirit. Nine minutes to go. Definition, holding a grudge or savoring the thought of getting even with no true desire for the salvation and reconciliation of the offending person. It's grudge holding. Boy, there are people that are still rolling around on the tongue of their soul an act that was done against them 30 years ago. That is so sad. Here's a crucial consideration of bygone grace becoming influential. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving all these grudges. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So there's a backward look. Don't hear me minimizing that in all this emphasis on future grace. That's a backward look that has great power when you're contemplating how hard you are toward your spouse, say, 
your kid, your neighbor, the guy who wronged you at work. You become hard. You're not tender anymore. You're hard. And you're not kind. The hardness is giving rise to unkindness, avoidance. You're not kind because there's no forgiveness going on here. What should you do? You should, among other things, besides all the argument I've given for looking at future grace that will be for you as you move into actions of love, you should look back and say, he forgave me. Look how much he's forgiven me. He loved me with that kind of love. That's the kind of love I should have. Okay, not backward look. So I'm getting convicted by how well I was loved by Jesus and how badly I'm loving here, how much I was forgiven by Jesus, how much I'm not forgiving here. I'm convicted. And now as I see that and, and then I feel how much that love is here for me now and, I, and now, now it shifts over to the future and I want to move toward that person with more tenderness as I trust that, that love will help me do that. In marriage verse. Jesus, when he died, modeled for us what to do with our sense of just wrong. You have been wronged. That's what makes your vengeance feel so right. People have wronged you. They really have. And it's wrong. God knows it's wrong. You know it's wrong. Other people may or may not know it's wrong, but you know you've been wronged and, and you feel justice isn't being done and justice ought to be done and they ripped me off and they're getting away with it. And here's what Jesus did when that happened. To this unjust suffering you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, that's important, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. How, how did he not? It was so wrong for him to be reviled. It's wrong for you to be reviled, and it was wrong for him to be reviled. What did he do, and can you do the same? When he suffered, he did not threaten. Feel so right to threaten when you're unjustly mistreated. But here's what he did. He continued handing over. Now, that's all the text says. And usually the text adds handing over himself or handing over his cause. And, and, and I think that's right. But it's, he hands over that situation to him who judges justly. So here he is hanging on the cross. And he knows that the mockery that's going on out there, bring yourself down if you're the Messiah. You healed others, heal yourself, blah, blah, blah. He knows that language is infinitely blasphemous and deserves to be struck with lightning right now and worse. What does he do with that? That's what ought to happen. That ought to happen. Knowing that it ought to happen, he hands it over to the judge who judges justly and says, it's your cause, not mine. I'm here to love and die for and forgive. Father, have mercy. And I hand it over to you. I think you can go with him there. I think you must go with him there. You've been wronged. Never wronger, no more wrong than Jesus. You need confidence. 
this will be settled. This won't be swept under the rug of the universe. If you thought that the wrong done against you is just going to be swept under the rug of the universe and nobody will know about it, nobody will care about it, you wouldn't be able to survive it. It won't be swept under the rug. It's going to be punished in hell or punished on the cross. And therefore, you can hand over to him who judges justly and say, I, I, I don't want to be consumed with bitterness. And I hand it over to you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In the end, there will be no unrecompensed sins. So you need to worry about that. They will be duly punished, either on the cross or in hell. And the last one is impatience. Impatience is the murmuring against providence that we are forced to walk the path of obedience in an unplanned place or an unplanned pace. So get impatient. Impatient. This is not the pace I'm meant to be driving. This is not the pace I'm meant to be single. This is not the pace I'm meant to be out of a job. I am just churning with impatience. And uh, the, the story of Joseph is a great help to me. Maybe I'll just uh, end by summarizing its lesson and then we'll, we'll stop. Joseph is sold into Egypt at age 17. Um... That was bad. He'd been thrown into a pit. As he was being brought up, he thought, oh, they're going to let me go. And they sell him. He goes down there and he lives right. He doesn't have sex with Potiphar's wife. And the result of, of being so good is that he gets thrown in jail. In jail, he's also good. He's so good, the jailer lets him help take care of the prisoners. The baker and the butler come to him with their dreams and he answers their dreams. The baker's been killed and the butler's going to be restored. They both come true and he says to the butler, remember me when, when you get back there, remember me. And he forgets him for two more years. Now this is a story of your life. In the pit, up, hope, down into Egypt, up, some responsibility in Potter's household, she lies about you, down in jail, up with hope that the butler might remind, remember you, down for another two years. This is life. I graphed this one time for our people in a Star article. I just graphed it. This is life. And I said, where are you on that 13-year downward spiral? Where are you? Because if you were Joseph, really, if you were Joseph at any given point, as he goes down, down, down for 13 years, wouldn't you say, God, I'm trying to live for you. And he was. He was a good man. I'm trying to live for you, and you throw me in a pit. I'm trying to live for you. I get sold into Egypt. I'm trying to live for you, and she lies about me. I'm trying to live for you, and this rascal butler forgets me for two more years. And God, if he had said anything, would say, be patient. I have a plan for you. And then the butler remembered when Pharaoh had a dream. And they called him out, and he became the vice president 
of Egypt and in the famine saved his family. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. And believe me, the devil means a lot of evil against you, and so do a lot of people. But God meant it for good to bring about many people to be kept alive as they are today. So what's the key to patience during the 13 years when you don't understand what's going on at all? And the answer is know the stories of the Bible. I think written over every life, I think written over the Garden of Eden and the demonic deception of the human race is, devil, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good. Over your life, you or your spouse or your boss or your kids or whoever ripped you off meant it for evil, I have a plan for you, a good plan. And therefore, be patient in it. I was going to end with this hymn, just quoting it. God moves in mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. That's, that's Joseph. That's John Newton. Summary, we're done. Future grace is promised. Faith lays hold on it and is satisfied by it. Out of that joyful heart in Jesus yields a life of love and God is glorified by it so that all three of our passions come true. I am amazed. That's slide 94. Is God good or what? We missed it by four minutes. Who could do that? I didn't do that. Thank you so much for being here. I, I hope that's just a little parable of uh, God's grace. Let's pray. So, Father, as we move into this beautiful day that you've designed for us, somehow distill 94 slides into a few simple, livable things. We can't keep all this in our head, but one or two glorious things that you've shown us we can hold on to and live by. So build a solid foundation and then grow the branches of faith and the fruit of love, I pray, and get glory for your son. In his name we pray. Amen.